the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This episode is a rebroadcast of The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Coming up this hour, we're joined by Chris Bale to talk about his book, Breaking the Social Media Prism. You're listening to The Common Good. friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today. Wanted to spend some time talking about spiritual practices, because uh, as pastors, but I know I feel this myself sometimes, but a lot of times people will say things like this to me. I believe in all of this. I believe in Jesus. I'm a Christ follower. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Mm. Like, what am I supposed to do? Because we talk about growing in our faith, yeah. knowing Jesus, kind of these big things. But but like rubber meets the road. Like, And they'll look at me, Pastor. How do you do it? Like, I've got it figured out somehow. And so, uh, you know, I usually... Uh, talk to them about, you know, kind of, kind of my rhythms, but I think that's an important conversation to have. Like what are spiritual practices, yep. spiritual rhythms, uh, that for you say kind of ground you into the faith? It helps you kind of, uh, grow in your faith, mm-hmm. be mindful of Jesus. Uh, mm-hmm. and hopefully we can leave this portion of the show, uh, helping people understand here's something, maybe try this yeah. or try this. So yeah. how would you answer that question? What are some spiritual practices and rhythms that may be important to you? So I feel like I have some new school ones and some old school ones. ones. Okay. Um, this probably aren't new school actually at all. I don't know why I phrased it like that, but things like <laughs> that you've never heard of them before. Reading the Bible. This is a complete new one. Are you ready? Taking a day off. <laughs> Sabbath. No, um, I, I, you know, I'm in a good season of life where I can get up early before my kids get up. I could not always do this when my kids were really little. So How early are we talking? Uh, not Probably not as early as you. I try to get up around 6 a.m. because I just That's like a quiet me. house. Oh, it's earlier than you? I thought you were like a 5 a.m. No, no, guy. no. Oftentimes, this is off the subject. Oftentimes, yeah. I'll wake up at like 5.45, but I'll stay in bed for okay, a little bit. Okay, okay. Mm. So I like to get up at 6, have my coffee. I like to journal. Mm-hmm. I like to practice silence where I'm just trying to be quiet and listening for the Lord speaking. Is there something that God has to say to me? I like to read scripture and I do Bible memory. Oh, okay. So that's sort of my, I like to have, you know, 30 minutes to an hour, depending on what the morning is like. Now, I know that's luxurious and not everyone has that this season of life they're in, but those are things that are important to me. And then when I really have time, I like to do um, a practice called holy imagination. It has New other terms. New school. <laughs> that was old school. <laughs> Where you're, you know, you read through the scripture and you take some time to try to think through what might it have smelled like, what might it have sounded oh. like, what might it ha- just to sort of bring the scripture to life in a new way. That's just a creative practice that I sort yeah. of like. Um, Let me ask you a question about yeah. one of them that you said because yeah, I yeah. think it's one that we hear often, and I think it's absolutely important but confusing for people okay so you said i like to you know i journal uh-huh. um and so you know i'm guessing you're kind of just reflecting and journaling on mm-hmm. kind of no oh, let me i'm gonna ask you for about two of yours okay how is journaling different from keeping a diary for you 
so okay for me journaling i when i'm good at being intentional i try to think through and this is a spiritual practice as well you think through when you were perhaps connected to the lord or um obedient to god Mm -hmm. and when maybe i wasn't when my attitudes or my perspective or my heart were not in the right place and just Try not to judge yourself, but just go, okay, God, here are the areas of my day yesterday, or here's what I know I'm prone to today, and just sort of process those things aloud. Sometimes I do just bullet journal, like, this cool thing happened. God answered Mm -hmm. this prayer. Here's something I'm praying about. Um, When I was younger, I I had diaries, which were more like, today I went and did X, Y, Z. It's a little bit different. It's more like, I, I don't know, I guess reflecting on my spiritual life with God. The other one that you said that I think is important that I was wanting to get to is listening. Mm, yeah. A lot of us, when we try to listen and we just end up daydreaming, yes. we just end up, what am I listening for? How right. do I actually know if that's God saying right. anything to me? Talk to us about listening. Yes. Listening has been a practice that has taken me a while to mm. get there. And I think you will daydream. You will wonder if it's you or God. You will think about your grocery list. And you just, <laughs> I think the important thing is just to go. Oh, God, here I am again. I'm trying to listen, but instead of where I'm coming back. And then you just go, you just go back to where you were. Okay, Lord, here I am trying to listen to you. Again. Yeah, yeah. And then your mind is going to wander. And then you just go, oh, well, I mean, you can't beat yourself up. You just be like, oh, Lord, I'm such a silly human. Here I am again. Now I'm coming back. And then in time, I think you'll find that like um, what I have found is that listening is really, really beautiful because the Holy Spirit, I mean, God is active mm-hmm. in our lives. And the Holy Spirit does have things to say. And so maybe it's a scripture that comes to mind, maybe it's a word or a phrase and you're not sure why, but later you're like, Lord, that's why you gave me that word or that mm. phrase. Maybe it's just a, um, sometimes it'll be a connection for me. Like I'm feeling anxious about something and the Lord will reveal maybe the heart of the anxiety. I think it's about one thing. I realize it's about something else. Mm. Um, or I'm like, Lord, Hey, I, there's this issue. I don't have an answer for it. I'm going to put it on the you know metaphorical altar at your feet <laughs> and, and ask that you speak to me about it. And then you're just quiet until the Lord shows up. And sometimes God does and sometimes God doesn't. Right. And I don't know. There's no magic. Just the Holy Spirit does what the Holy Spirit wants to do. But I think attending to God's voice is so important for Christians because it, one, it builds your faith and reminds you like, oh, God is real. And I think it helps you go, oh, the Holy Spirit is in me. The Holy yeah. Spirit does speak. Yeah. And it's not this magical, mystical thing. It's like that sense, that inner voice, however you want to describe it. You go, oh, that's actually God speaking. And mm. that's cool. Mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. Okay. Now you tell me about your spiritual practices. You know, the one that came to mind for me, and it goes along with your uh, listening and praying. I, I do that best when I'm walking. So I think a lot of people That's think, good. oh, I've got to be kneeling and quiet. I, I'm really, when you you show much better grace than I do, because I'll beat myself up. I'm like, all right, I'm going to sit down right now and I'm going to pray. And then it's like, I need to make that phone call. Or I wonder how the Mets <laughs> yes. are going to do tonight. Right. Or, yeah, and you're just like, oh, I failed at praying today. Yeah. I can find a lot better focus and a lot, uh, and I can hear God better when I'm outside on a walk. That's great. And so I will just go, there's a park uh, near us where I will go walk around this pond or I'll go walk around uh, these fields and just go around. I know that if I can be active and moving, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes I'll pray while I'm walking the dog. Yeah. Uh, and and I find that to be a lot more beneficial for me than just like, okay, I'm going to sit down right now yeah. and I'm going to pray. I ask for Bible reading. There's lots of great plans out there, right? Like go to the version app or whatever it's else. Such a great app. Yes. I wouldn't get so hung up on what am I reading as much as get in the habit of reading. There you go. And and then and then start 
uh, start there and then then start thinking about plans and, you know, other books you can read. You know, I, I'm going to, uh, you know, you, you look at these plans and then you can kind of nail down, okay, now this is going to guide me. There's so many great guides out there. Yes. That the answer to it, to why I don't read the Bible can never be, I don't know what I'm going to read. Yeah, there, you have so many options in there. front of you. Yeah, they're yeah, there. that's true. And, and then I'm sure you read the Louder Song or something as a Some supplement. Some great book called The Louder Song by Aubrey Sampson, available on Amazon, wherever you buy your books. Just ready to go. We wanted to do this because as pastors, we get this all the time. Mm-hmm. What do I do? And quite frankly, a lot of times I look in the mirror going, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do to grow? And so I wanted to have just kind of a, a conversation about spiritual practices. We'd love to hear back from you. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Common Good Talk. Well, coming up next, the author of the book called Breaking the Social Media Prism, How to Make Our Platforms Less Polarizing. His name is Chris Bale, a professor of sociology and public policy at Duke University. He's going to talk to us about social media, help us understand uh, the goods, the bads, and how we should be handling it. We're going to do that next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks so much for joining us today here on The Common Good. Uh, we're really glad to have you with us. Uh, go find our podcast wherever it is. You get your podcast, subscribe, rate, review. You can also find us online at 1160hope.com. And Aubrey, one of the things we talk about here on the show often, sometimes it feels like too much, but we, but it's like the topic, I think, for this culture and this time where we need to deal with, and that's social media. Right. Uh, I've told you over the summer I watched uh, The Social Dilemma on Netflix, and it was fascinating and terrifying all at once all yes. at once i think everybody should watch it and with that in mind uh this idea of social media we are about to be joined here by the author of a new book called breaking the social media prism how to make our platforms less polarizing he's a professor of sociology and public policy at duke university where he directs something called the polarization lab his name is chris bale chris how are you doing I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Oh, we're, it's our pleasure, man. Thanks so much for coming on today. And your book is fabulous, and we're excited to talk to you about it. But before we jump into your book, could you just introduce yourself to our audience so they could get to know you a little bit? Sure. You know, for about 10 years, I've been really concerned about social media and political polarization. You know, I think we've all seen these trends increase. You know, we've all yes. felt, I think, helpless about, you know, what can be done on social media. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to do two things. First, I wanted to do some high-quality research mm-hmm. to try to you know, guide us and take the next steps, but also to produce some tools that people can use, real, you know, real social media users can use to try to counter political tribalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds so good. So, so, Chris, tell us a little bit about the premise of the book, Breaking the Social Media Prism, and um, why right now? I mean, I can have guesses, but from your perspective, why does this book need to be published right now? Well, you know, about four or five years ago, we crossed the threshold as a country that, that really worries me. For the first time ever, our hatred of the other party mm-hmm. surpassed our love for our own party. Mm. And, you know, that sounds that sends off kind of alarm bells for social scientists like me because we know that that just makes things about, you know, identity politics and not about the issues. And we have so many important issues to deal with right now. So, you know, now is the time. Uh, I think COVID lays it bare, right? I mean, everybody's so polarized and the only thing worse than, you know, half the country, one, you know, completely social distancing or completely opening the economy is when half of the country does one of those things and the other half is doing the other. Right, right. 
that's a perfect example of why right now is the time, man. Absolutely. And Chris, I said, you might have heard me before you came on. I saw, I watched The Social Dilemma over the summer or, or back in the winter, and it just completely freaked me out. I'm sure you've seen it. And it helped me realize that uh, everything that we kind of think and we know about social media, whether it be Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, uh, is kind of wrong. And, and I know that you dive into that. Could you help us uh, understand how everything we think we know about social media is actually wrong? Well, you know, movies like The Social Dilemma are great because they're raising awareness. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think a lot of people are left after, you know, watching that movie with the idea that Facebook can kind of flip a magical switch and stop polarizing us. Mm. And, you know, after years of doing research on this, I wish that were true. I really, (laughs) really do. Right. But... I have some bad news, which is that I don't think, A, they have that kind of switch, or B, if they did, it would really move the needle very much. Yeah. And what we're, what we're not appreciating enough, I think, is how each of us, all of us, our own behavior, and I'm not just talking about the extremists out there, I'm also mm-hmm. talking about the moderates who are not posting on social media very much, mm. it's, it's all of our behavior that's creating this problem, and, you know, if we wait for Facebook to save us, I'm worried, you know, we'll wind up right back where we are. That's right. Yeah, that's really good. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about that human behavior. What are we doing that is causing this polarization? How can we break out of whatever we're doing, more importantly? Mm-hmm. Well, the first thing I think everybody needs to know is that we are much less polarized than it looks like on social media. Mm. If we look at Twitter, for example, about 73% of posts about politics are created by just 6% of Twitter users. Wow. And that 6% of Twitter users has very extreme views. So what that means is if you're a conservative person and you come across a liberal person talking about politics online, it's very likely that that person has extreme views. And what you're not seeing is the far greater majority of social media users who actually never post about politics. And that's what I call the social media prism in my book. Mm -hmm. What I'm most worried about is the increasingly large gap between social media and real life. I think Mm -hmm. that's our biggest problem. Wow. Wow. Describe that more. I, I've I've heard that before, but I've never really quite understood it that way. Help us understand that prism, because I think a lot of us do get on Facebook and Twitter and we get really discouraged, like, oh, my gosh, you know, we are that polarized. Help us understand that difference and and how that can you know cause us to live differently, even. Well, you know, I think the first question we have to ask is, what does social media incentivize us to do? Mm. You know. We all would love social media to, to connect us, right? To right. Like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg says, to bring us all together, to bring us all closer together. But, but if you look at what it's really doing, it's incentivizing people to make extreme statements. You know, mm-hmm. basically the way the algorithms that guide social media platforms work, you know, the more engagement you get, the more those posts tend to appear earlier in people's news feeds and more mm-hmm. people are seeing them. What's the best way to get engagement? Say something, you know, sensational. Say something extreme. Right. And so what happens is we get rewarded for preaching to the choir, you know, for kind of rallying our own side, instead of for reaching across the aisle. Mm. And, you know, this is, I think, the biggest problem on social media right now. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think that that is so on point right there, Chris. <laughs> okay, so for people who actually want to make a difference... Um, do you have any tips or any just advice for those of us who want to do things differently on social media? Absolutely. 
So the first thing I think we can all do is educate ourselves about this social media prism. So when you see that person from the other side that says something that you just can't believe, it just seems, you know, so crazy that it can't be true. Right. That might be just one extremist out there. Mm. So the first thing is to, to kind of realize that, you know, moderate people simply aren't talking on social media. Um, the mm. second thing we can do, though, is to try to boost and incentivize moderation. So instead of rewarding people for saying increasingly extreme things. What if Facebook and Twitter rewarded us for producing content that people on both sides of the aisle actually like? Mm. And, you know, this is something that not only would be easy for Facebook or Twitter to do, but this is something that your listeners can do right now if they go to our website, polarizationlab.com. There's a bunch of free tools, including a bipartisanship leaderboard, which ranks the people whose tweets get the most traction across both parties. Hmm. We've also built bots that will retweet those messages every three hours, so you can kind of automatically change the way your newsfeed works. That's cool. Again, that's polarizationlab.com. Again, that's polarizationlab.com. We're thrilled to be joined by Chris Bale, professor of sociology and public policy at Duke University, where he directs the Polarization Lab. Uh, And he's written a great new book called Breaking the Social Media Prism, How to Make Our Platforms Less Polarizing. You can also learn more about Chris at Chris Bale. That's B-A-I-L, chrisbale.net. From the description of your book, I found something that was just, it really kind of fascinated me because it kind of went against something that I thought. You said that uh, the book helps explain why stepping outside our echo chambers can make us more polarized and not less. I always thought getting out of our echo chambers, like that was kind of the solution. How is it that getting out of our echo chambers can actually make us um, kind of, that could actually have the opposite effect? Great question. You know, I thought the same thing. About four years ago, I thought this was the answer to all our problems. Let's mm-hmm. take people outside their echo chamber. They'll begin to listen to the other side more. We'll be able to humanize each other, maybe even empathize each- with each other a little more. We tried a large experiment in 2017. We, we asked about 1,200 people to complete a survey about their views. And then over the next month, we paid half of them to follow a Twitter bot that retweeted messages from the other political party. So if you're a Democrat, you were seeing uh, a message every hour from a Republican. And if you were a Republican, you were seeing a message every hour from a Democrat. Hmm. Now, of course, we hoped when we did this, at the end of the month, when we resurveyed everybody, everyone would be a little more moderate. Unfortunately, what we saw is exactly the opposite. Wow. So Democrats became a little more liberal and conservatives became a lot more conservative. Hmm. You know, and, and, you know, I think the reason why is, you know, if you think about it, what does stepping outside your echo chamber mean? I think we all want social media to be a competition of ideas, right? All the ideas get out there and the best ones rise to the top. Right. But if your experience of, of a place like Twitter is like mine, it's not really a competition of ideas. It's a competition of identities. You know, mm-hmm. we're all just out to take each other down. And when you go outside your echo chamber, what do you get? More of the other side taking you down. Mm. Ah, that that is so interesting, Chris. Um, okay, talk to us a little bit about uh, the work you guys do at Polarization Lab. Uh, what's your team like? What's the mission? Well, you know, we're at an exciting time right now for social science, studying what you know where political tribalism comes from, and it's an exciting time because we have more data than we've ever had. You know, questions that used to be impossible for social science like, scientists like me to answer. You know, we can now collect, you know, millions of data points in, in a few minutes. 
Mm. And so it's really opened things up. You know, we, we, we can look at all sorts of new questions. We can, we can use artificial intelligence to try to, you know, learn more about how patterns like political tribalism exist. But, you know, we also need to, you know, understand that these are, you know, uniquely public problems. You know, like, we don't have the time to wait and do the research. We also need to put tools into people's hands. And so what we do that's a little bit different, I'd like to think, than the next group of academics is really trying to translate the insights from our research into actionable things that Facebook could do, Twitter could do, and most importantly, you know, people like your listeners could do. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Chris, uh, someone like you who has studied and you've kind of dove into this, I wonder if everything that happened at the Capitol on January 6th, if you were shocked by that or if you this was the natural outcome of where you saw things going. And on top of that, what role did social media, in your opinion, as someone who has studied this, play in what ended up happening at the Capitol on January the 6th? Yeah, great question. I mean, I don't think there's anyone who wasn't shocked by January 6th. Right. I mean, you know. Uh, what a disappointing series of events for everyone, no matter what your your political uh, opinion, I think. But, you know, am I surprised? You know, not entirely. And, and the reason why is, you know, extremism online has created this powerful gap between what we see online and what we see off. You know, so we have a lot of lonely people out there. Mm-hmm. And what they're looking for is a way to belong, a way to fit in. And unfortunately, extremist groups, you know, provide a sense of belonging for people. And what these people don't realize is the people that they're connecting with online aren't, you know, ordinary, normal people. The deeper they go into these extremist communities, the more the extreme ideas seem normal. And, you know, that's, again, the power of what I call the social media prism. You know, it's changing the way we understand each other and Mm. and mostly for the worse. So if you were pulling back the curtain on some of these uh, political extremists online, Give us a sense of reality. Like, what is life really like behind, you know, the social media screen? Well, let me give you the story of a guy that sticks out in our research. Because one of the things we did that's a little unusual is we talked to people before and after they followed these bots. And we get to know them pretty well. And one one person that sticks out is a guy who, you know, we met him. He's one of the most polite people, you know, that I would ever met. You know, he just super nice guy, goes out of his way to say, you know, you know, look at all these people online saying all these crazy stuff. They're a bunch of nut jobs, right? Well, then when we went to look this guy up on Twitter, we, did, we, we discovered that this guy is actually one of the most prolific political trolls out there. Wow. Each night he kind of undergoes like a Dr. Jekyll into Mr. Hyde style transformation, you know, and, and becomes one of the more, you know, extreme people on Twitter. So the question we asked is, why on earth does this guy do this? Why does he have this, you know, online and offline persona? And why yeah. are they so different? The answer, it turns out, is the guy, again, is it, he's, he's lonely. He's a social outcast, you know, mm-hmm. in, his, in his day-to-day life. You know, he doesn't have a lot of friends. He doesn't have a fulfilling job. You know, he's, he's single. He lives with his mother, you know. Wow. And online, he's got a kind of micro-celebrity, you know. So, so he's getting something out of, out of this extremism that, that, you know, you'd never know if you meet him in real life. And that's another example of why I'm so concerned about the gap between social media and real yeah. life. Wow. Absolutely. That's a fascinating story. Now, social media is a huge part of this. I, I wonder, as you study political extremism, tribalism, all of this, uh, the role of cable news. So, A, what's the role of kind of partisan cable news? Uh, and then also, uh, what would you encourage to people out there? Maybe they only watch Fox News. Maybe they only watch MSNBC. What do you think is more of a helpful way to ingest our news? Well, cable news is certainly part of the problem here. 
And, you know, that's important to note because we were polarized long before social media came along. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people want to say, oh, well, you know, Facebook, it's Facebook's fault, it's Twitter's fault. They're not helping, to be sure. <laughs> but we had a big problem long before social media. And, you know, the thing about cable news, back in the 70s, 80s, you know, you had three large networks, CBS, NBC, ABC, and none of them could afford to say anything too partisan, right? Because if you did, you'd lose half your audience. Then what happens in the 1980s and the 1990s, you got a bunch of small television stations that serve niche, you know, small audiences, and they actually do well by taking more extreme positions. And so the whole market of media changed somewhere around 1980 and 1990, and we were left with a situation where, you know, we've got, uh, you know, increasingly extreme cable news channels, yeah. and and now they're, you know, now they're the, the main show in town. So if I was to give some advice to your listeners, I think the, the best thing they could do is to try to find moderation themselves. So if you go on polarizationlab.com, again, you can check out our rankings of different media organizations and follow those that are in the middle. You know, um, media outlets like the Wall Street Journal, uh, ABC News. Um, you know, these are the ones that seem to be resonating with both liberals and conservatives and may just be the best way to try to find the middle right now. Yeah, yeah that's really good. Um, okay, one more question for you, maybe two if we have time. If you could, this is a little idealistic, but if you could change anything about Facebook or Twitter or some of the other social media platforms, two to three things, what would you change right now? First thing I would do is to change the way that our posts appear in our newsfeed. Again, we're getting rewarded for saying extreme things, and you know that's that's not helping. What we need to be rewarded for is producing content that lots of different people like. Yeah. So Facebook tomorrow could change the way that it ranks posts and boosts them in our newsfeed, makes them appear earlier in our newsfeed. Mm-hmm. They could do that in a way that, you know, promoted people who are actually in the middle instead of promoting the extremes. That's the first thing. The second thing, I think we do need better content moderation. We need more transparent content moderation. We need to know exactly why the decisions are being made. But lastly, we need to see the data, you know, right now, Facebook knows a lot of things that nobody else does. They mm. have all the data. They can do all the analysis. And researchers like me are kind of standing outside saying, you know, hey, wouldn't you love to get an objective, independent assessment of things like whether conservatives are being censored more on social media than liberals? Right. You know? yeah. But we just can't know until we get the data. And I think that's one area where, you know, we're about to have a conversation as a country about government regulation. Maybe we could get some bipartisan support for uh, for people wanting to make social media companies' data a little more transparent. Absolutely. Chris, this is my last question for you. Thanks so much for the time. You've been super generous mm-hmm. with your time. Uh, let's just ask it this way. Are you hopeful for us culturally? Like, it feels like with all the, you know, conspiracy theories and polarization, all this, it, we seem to be trending in a really negative direction. But do you think we can turn a corner as a culture, or, or are you pretty dubious going, no, I think we're we're in for some more pain here going forward? I think in the short term, we're in, we're in for more pain, but in the long term, I'm cautiously optimistic. And here's why. If we take the long view for a moment about social media, we see that platforms come and go. You know, right. maybe both of you are old enough like me to remember this thing called MySpace. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder about MySpace right now. Right. I have no idea what you're talking about, right? Yeah. Um, and Facebook came out of nowhere, right? Instagram came out of mm-hmm. nowhere. TikTok came out of nowhere. Now Clubhouse is coming out of nowhere, mm-hmm. right? It suggests that there's an appetite for something new. You know, nobody really loves Facebook or loves Twitter. You know, we use it because, you know, we've come to depend on it. Right. But it suggests to me that there's an opportunity for someone with vision 
to build something better and to learn from research and to, you know, optimize again for democracy, you know, optimize for bringing us together instead of tearing us apart. That's got to be part of the solution. And sooner or later, these platforms are going to begin to suffer because who wants to log on to Facebook and just see a bunch of people fighting? <laughs> yes, pretty soon, so true. people are going to want actual content that, you know, they learn from or they, they find interesting or valuable. And they're not getting that right That's now. That's absolutely yeah. true. Again, you can follow Chris at chrisbail.net. That's B-A-I-L, chrisbail.net. Also on Twitter, at Chris underscore Bail. Check out the work he's doing at the polarizationlab.com. And we cannot encourage you enough to get his book, Breaking the Social Media Prism, How to Make Our Platforms Less Polarizing. Chris, this was fascinating, man. Thanks so much for your time today. Hey, thanks, Brian. Thanks, Abby. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. Oh, it's our pleasure. Thanks again. And again, I'd encourage you to get his book, Breaking the Social Media Prism, How to Make Our Platforms Less Polarizing. That was Chris Bale. Again, uh, we're going to close out the show here next on The Common Good as we talk more about pandemic habits going forward. What are we going to keep in our lives as we get back into a little bit of normalcy? You're listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. This episode is a rebroadcast of The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. Before I tell you what the top five list of the day is going to be, we need to listen to our awesome top five open. Top five, top five, top five. Top five. Top five things with Brian and Aubrey. A musical, a musical, and nothing's as amazing as a musical with song and dance and sweet romance. It's just great. I mean, it just always puts a smile on my face. Puts a smile. Okay. I'll never get tired of it. Let's let's give uh, the parameters here. It's it's our top five musicals that we've either seen, seen live, you're saying, or watched or like watched. on TV yep. or not something. Not just heard about. I'm not gonna be like, yeah. oh, you know, I heard. I've never saw Miss Saigon or right. So, okay. Oh, I okay. heard that was good. So okay. Uh, top five musicals. You chose this one. Yeah. So would you like to go first? Yeah, I will go first. Uh, oh, we start at number five. So remember? Hard. The yes. ground rules are: we start at number five yeah. and we build to number yeah. one. This is this was very hard for me. And you should also know that Aubrey's lists are usually terrible. That's hey, you had Marge Simpson <laughs> and Estelle Costanza oh, on your TV oh, mom list. That was so, that was wonderful. So, you were just proving my point right there. All right, my number five uh, Broadway musical is In the Heights. In the Heights. Uh, the first musical by Lynn Manuel Miranda. I've heard it's wonderful. I've never seen it's it. It's awesome. The music's great. There is a movie coming out this summer. Definitely worth watching. Okay. Off to a good start. My number five, I took Carrie to go see Phantom of the Opera. Oh, my sister loves Phantom of the Opera. Do you not the, like the, the opera? The chandelier comes uh, down. Did you not like Phantom of I the Opera? I am not a huge... Like, oh, my sister yeah, that I'm one. not a huge Andrew Lloyd Webber fan. I think I'm just... 
I don't. I don't know. I, okay. I'm a little bit cynical about some of Andrew Lloyd Webber, but I, you know, <laughs> but it's dramatic. What a line! I'm a, a little bit cynical of Andrew Lloyd Webber. There's a canoe in the, No, there's not a canoe. There's a canal boat in. I think so. In Phantom, I've seen Phantom. Okay. Okay. All right. Uh, my number four is uh, this. Actually, I started out liking as a movie when I was growing up, but then it became a musical on Broadway. That is Disney's Newsies. Bronx will be riding if we're united. Let us seize the day. Okay. Yeah, love Newsies. Love okay. the dancing and the music and the story. It's fun. So have you seen it as a musical? I have or just seen a movie? it as a musical and a movie. Yes. Okay. Okay. My number four musical, uh, also one that I went with my wife to go see, and that would be Wicked. Love Wicked. That's yeah. on my list too. It yeah. a, it, the ending is a little weird. Like there are moments where you're like, "Wait, what just happened?" Yeah. But the music is so unbelievable. The music is amazing. The performers are. Amazing. Uh, Did you read the book Wicked that it was based on? The book is phenomenal too. I'm going to let you take a guess at that. Yeah, it would be a no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, Wicked. Okay, um, my number three. This is. I told Brian I had a couple on my list. One I took off. That's like a little edgy, maybe. Although it's. I mean, to your list. It's like 90s edgy, so it probably wouldn't seem that edgy now. But um, Rent, which is the okay. new like La Boheme, I have seen Rent probably six times. I love Rent. I don't like the movie version, but I love the stage version. All right, number three. This is the most questionable okay. for people about whether this is actually a musical. Oh. But I am going to go to, I'm going to fight hard for this one. And I'm going to go with a trilogy here. <laughs> Okay, and this was never really on Broadway per se. Okay. Maybe it is, but but this is very much a movie TV show. Okay, uh, I'm going to go with the movie versions of one, two, and three High School Musical. <laughs> I love High School Musical. They were right in the sweet spot, especially of my oldest daughter being young. Yeah, and I would constantly ask wow. her, "Watch, can we watch High School Musical?" I have come across High School Musical while <laughs> flipping the channels with no one else in the house. And you- <laughs> And I Which one's your favorite? There. One, two, or three? I think for me it goes one, two, okay, three. Okay, that order. Yeah. And then three, three we could have done without. And uh, do you have a favorite song? Uh, <laughs> I get what you're trying to do here. <laughs> I see. Uh, you know, it's so funny. My daughter uh, Emily and a friend of hers were watching High School Musical just this weekend, this past weekend, and I kind of stopped and watched with them a little bit. And there's the one where Gabriella is walking, and all of a sudden it's very dramatic, and she's walking in the school right yes. after uh, right after Troy Bolton has kind of like said bad things about her, yes. not really on purpose. Yes, that's the song. That's the song. Could no, you sing a few lyrics? What I about not. saying a few? Lyrics. I will not. I will not. Oh. I like the one where in number two, where Zach Efron has kind of a Michael Jackson moment. He's on the golf course. It's uh, like a worse song and he's dancing, but it's amazing. We, I'm not gonna stop that. We talked about that song all <laughs> the time. Bad on it, bad on it. Yeah, That's it, right? But it sounds like he's saying bad on it. But he's like, <laughs> yeah, he's like, do it. So it's his Michael Jackson moment. You and I have a mutual friend we discussed. Uh, 
over lunch, and his name is Dan Moss. He's a yes. good friend of mine, and yeah. Dan and I would mock and sing that song all the time because our daughters it. were oh, the same, same age. age. Oh, oh it's now you're going to get me singing High School Musical, my number three. I am, I am very happy that's on your list. All right, I my number two was it. on your list already. My number two is Wicked. I love okay. Wicked. Yeah, very epic, very fun. Okay, my number two, and one and two far out distance, three, four, and five gotcha. for me. Okay, one and two are way up there. Number two, I have probably seen it 10 times. My mom it used to be a high school French teacher, and we would go see this. She would teach it in her class. I tagged along a couple times because she would end the year taking the kids to Broadway to see this. I took my future wife there on Broadway. I took my daughter to see this in South Bend, Indiana. I will see this as many times as I can. That musical is Les Mis. is amazing. I could watch that. If you yeah. if you said it was in town and I could see it every night, yeah. I would see it every night. I'm sort of I wishing I would have put Les Mis on my list now because it Honorable is mention. phenomenal. Honorable mention, Les Mis. It's phenomenal. It is so good. Les Mis, High School Musical 3. That's it for you. <laughs> wow. That's the list. <laughs> Your list is diverse, Brian. I like it. it All is. right. Are you ready for my number one? I have and a then feeling we'll, I, we're going to have the same number one. I think one. we are, too. I have a few honorable mentions as well. Should I say those first? Sure. Okay. Sure. So I'll add Les Mis. I'm okay. gonna go Lion King. I haven't seen it, but I love and, the Disney. Um, I'm gonna go Spring Awakening, which is another kind of edgy one. I, I really like the music from that. And then this is not a favorite musical because it's Andrew Lloyd Webber, but I have a good story. Quick, I'll be quick. Go. Um, when I was little, my mom made me read all of the T.S. Eliot poems called Cats, different cats. And my mom made me read the poems, and then she took me to see the Broadway musical. Now, I don't like the musical, but because I had read the poems, the world of the show opened up to me, and it was this marvelous experience. I will never forget it. So Cat Sticks in my memory is really meaningful, but I don't actually like it. Everyone is like... Does everyone that has sense? seen Cats, yeah. or was the longest running, and I've yet to meet a person who liked it. Yeah, it's... It's not great. Yes. I've yet to meet a person. But the poems coming to life, that was very powerful. So a bit anticlimactic because I think we have the same number one. Should we say at the same time? One, two, three. Hamilton. (laughs) 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 No, Hamilton was my number one as well. (laughs) Hamilton. I mean. It's just It's unstoppable, yeah. It is yeah. breathtaking, and it's going to come back. I did tell you off the air, and I'll tell the story another day. I actually got a chance to golf one day with the man who played Hamilton in Chicago and the guy who played King George. So I'm very jealous of that. My one, of you know, this. my one big problem with Hamilton is I don't, he did not write the women well. They only talk about Hamilton. The women don't have much of their own storyline. Yeah, sure until they do. I, well, well, when like he the dies. The movie is when he wife. dies. But she's the one who carries on the end. Yeah, no. yeah, his legacy. She uh, can't, the whole, they, all they do is talk about Hamilton. There's not a scene where they're not talking about wanting a man or Hamilton. So that's my one, but I love it. I love I just, it, I love it, I love it. Just to argue this point, and then we gotta go. Okay, yeah. What's the name of the musical? My name is Alexander Hamilton. 
Oh, you're funny. <laughs> <laughs> Not Hamilton's wife. <laughs> it was called Hamilton. <laughs> Not Skylar Sisters. They should get their own music. I hall. do love the Skylar Sisters. They're great. So that's our top five list. Top five musicals. Where's High School Musical fall in your list? <laughs> Not does it, but where does it? Go to Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Common Good Talk. Well, coming up next, just 16% of millennials classify themselves as born-again Christians. What do we make of that new data that's come out? We're going to have that discussion next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. This episode is a rebroadcast of The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Coming up this hour, just 16% of millennials classify as born-again Christians. What do we make of that statistic? You're listening to The Common Good. friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today. So I was reading this at Christian Headlines, and I want you to hear this statistic, because I think there's there's some nuance to this. There's some layering to okay. this, but okay. there was a study from the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University, uh, what they're calling a, quote, seismic generational shift between the worldviews of older Americans and younger Americans, also known as millennials. Here's what the research says. Uh, it found that millennials ages 18 to 36, those little kids, right? Like you and I are much older than this, those youngins. <laughs> 18 to 36. 18 to wow. 36. When compared with the older generation, 55 and over. So you and I, we can talk about this because we're neither. We we're keep right getting in the skipped. We're always Gen Xers. They don't even include us. That yep. They are significantly less likely to hold the traditional biblically based teachings, including the nature of God, original sin, salvation, creation, life after death, human purpose, and biblical morality. That says a lot. Wow. Uh, but then also, here's one of the big ones that they found here. Only 16% of millennials consider themselves to be, quote, unquote, born again Christians. Okay. Uh, 40% of people 55 and over identify as born again Christians, whereas 16% of millennials, alternatively, younger Americans, this study says, were more likely to hold to a, quote, moral or therapeutic deism, which has been deemed a counterfeit version of Christianity, more centered on self than on God. So there's a lot of stats in here, but some of that jumps out here. And I, I want to hone in on, okay, if we take that younger generation right, saying, you know what, I'm not a born or 16% saying I'm quote unquote born again right. Christian. How much of a red flag warning is this for us? How yeah. much of this though then, or is it just about labels? Is it just about what that means? Yeah. Tell us what you do with some of this data that we're seeing. Here. Right. I feel like this is a hard this is a hard one because the phrase born again Christian is not a phrase that like we even use at our church, Renewal mm-hmm. Church. So part of me is like, is it the is it the phrase itself? And are are this younger generation using a different phrase? Just I'm a Christian or mm-hmm. I follow Jesus or I'm a disciple of Jesus. But then I think the second problem is what seems to be happening is there's a generation of Christians that are no longer following sort of what we would consider the historic Orthodox mm-hmm. global Christianity. They're blending maybe different belief systems or different worldviews into Christianity and calling that following Jesus. Yes. And I think some of it's probably right. I mean, that's the hard thing is there. The next generation is probably seeing some things we did wrong and pointing us in the right direction. But when you lose things like, 
what was that list that you read? Like nature of God, original nature sin, of God, salvation. salvation, creation, <laughs> life, human purpose, and biblical morality. I mean, you don't have much. Left. Uh, yeah, what's what's left? Yeah, right. Yeah. So, so I think let's take the phrase "born again Christian." Okay. For me, when I see that, I think some of that is tied into. Um, uh, I think it's tied into politics, like everything mm-hmm. else in our world is. You hear evangelical, but you also hear the born-again evangelicals or the born-again Christians yeah. are all X. They all believe this. And I think that what we, we know right. about the millennial generation is they want to reject those labels, those political yep. ties that say, yep. okay, if you're telling me born-again Christians are not just followers of Jesus, that they're also all Republican yeah. or they're all this— and I don't want to be that, then I know I'm going to reject that title. Like you said, maybe I'll take on a different title. Does yeah. it necessarily mean that they're rejecting Jesus? It might mean they're rejecting the title. With that said, uh, you know, and boarding in Christian, for some of you who are out there going, where does that even come from? It's Jesus's own words. Yeah. when He says you must be born again. Right. Uh, but I would also say that what you said, that list, and again, every survey Take it for what it's worth, yeah. right? These aren't, this isn't gospel here. This isn't like, oh my gosh, no millennials believe in God or original right, sin. Right. But it might be talking about a trajectory that should be worrisome to pastors, to parents, to mm-hmm. why would it be that our, you know, uh, that generation, I mean, you and I were youth pastors of this generation. Yeah. Right. And, and I think, I don't know if you see this, I see this often on the social media feeds of, uh, they're not kids anymore, young adults mm-hmm. who were in my youth group that I led, you know, sometimes they're just killing it and they're following Jesus. Yeah. And you're like, oh, but let's be honest. A lot of them aren't. A lot aren't. And you're just like, what in the world yeah. is going on? Because yeah. when I look back at my youth group from my generation, we could all be in different spots doing different things. But by and large, we're all still in the still church and we're Jesus, all still in still this. Faithful church so what folk. do we farm out of this? What do we take from this? Because there is a red flag in here. Mm-hmm. And I think you you hit on it about that list about moral therapeutic mm-hmm. deism, which is basically saying, um, you know, it, it's this version of Christianity that kind of focuses more on yourself right. than on God. Right. What makes you know what's going to help my life? What's going to help this? So what is the learning curve? What do we learn from this? What do we do with this? I think there's two options. You can kind of like shake your fist and be like, the next generation, they're falling apart. Country's going to hell in a handbasket or whatever. I never think that's helpful. Mm -hmm. I think instead you go, okay, what is the opportunity? What are the longings of the next generation? And how does the gospel meet those longings? Because we know that the gospel meets the longings of every generation. And we know that God is not surprised by this generation. We know that this generation is not worse than any other generation, even though sometimes we want to act like it is. And so I think you have to uh, build bridges, build relationships and go, okay, what is the longing? What is this? What are Gen Z millennials longing for? And then how does the gospel answer that? And let's find new creative ways to present the gospel. Let's find new creative ways to frame some of these conversations, not at all getting rid of orthodoxy or what's true. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying keep those things. But if it's, if it's, politics are the problem then we don't i mean let's stop combining right. politics and christianity let's get back this is what i think is actually beautiful about this generation they do i think want a pure faith where they encounter the goodness and the power and the life-changing spirit of god i do think they're Amen. longing for that and so um let's ask that god would give us as the older generation wisdom mm-hmm to present and display and live a gospel that is that compelling. You just called us the older generation. That's outstanding. 
Coming up next, David French is going to join us. Here's a couple things we're going to talk about. Uh, How do Christian patriots love their country well? Uh, He wrote some stuff about critical race theory. David French was also the genesis of your and I's conversation about the arrival of aliens. Oh, yes. I'm very excited to talk aliens with David French. We are going to discuss all of that and more with our friend David French coming up next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us. And Aubrey, we are glad to be joined by a legitimate friend of the show. Uh, David French is the senior editor at The Dispatch, also a columnist and author. Uh, he is part of his blog post is called The French Press. And David, we love having you on. Thanks so much for joining us again today. Well, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's absolutely our pleasure. Even though we've had you on a bunch of times, if there are people tuning in who don't know who you are, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience so they can get to know you a little bit? Yeah, I'm a um, former, well, I'm still actually an attorney, but former constitutional litigator, currently journalist, uh, veteran, husband, father, Mm. Christian, um, and not necessarily in that order that I just went out. <laughs> Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's the and Tennessee dweller. So that, that's the quick bio. We jokingly said you're you're with all of our former neighbors, all of our Illinois friends moving They've down all to moved Tennessee. Down by David French. They're all down there with you. So, uh, David, I wanted to start a couple different places, but you were just part of a New York Times opinion piece written by uh, a couple different people. Again, you were one of them, and it is entitled "This: We Disagree on a Lot of Things Except the Danger of Anti-Critical Race Theory Laws." Now, there's no bigger conversation I think going on around Twitter and everywhere, you know cable news than critical race theory. So can you help us understand what you see as the danger of some of these anti-critical race theory laws going on right now? Yeah, so <laughs> let, let, me, let me sort of start at the top. Uh, one, they're inherently deceptive because they don't actually ban critical race theory. So mm. if you know about or are concerned about critical race theory, which my own view of it is that there are some elements of it that are helpful and some elements elements of it that are not helpful, um, then right off the bat, you're, it's a bit, they're, they're misleading. So what they are doing is they ban, to varying degrees, discussions of certain concepts. Now, some of the concepts are pretty, unco- you know, that it's pretty uncontroversial that they shouldn't be taught in school, mm-hmm. like that one race is superior to another right, race. Right. Uh, but there's already laws that prohibit that kind of grotesquely racist um, instruction. But then they steadily get more and more sort of complicated and vague and broad to the point where, for example, in, in Tennessee, um, you're even going to be prohibited from including an in instruction, uh, a kind of uh, ideas that would disparage a creed, a creed. Well, mm-hmm. communism is a creed. Mm-hmm. So wait, is it, now, is it now unlawful in Tennessee to to disparage communism. I mean, mm. these are very poorly written laws. Uh, mm. Kentucky has Kentucky has proposed a law that bans discussions of certain concepts in informal and formal classroom discussion. Mm. What? Mm. Yeah. Um, you have so the problem with the laws is that they're very broad. They're very vague. It's very hard to tell what's actually banned and what's not actually banned. 
And so a couple of things are happening at once. One is that in a lot of places around the country, people are hyping CRT as something that is just everywhere. When it's in some places, there's no question about it. And there's some toxic stuff that you will see around the country, no question about it. But they say that it's basically everywhere and that these laws are coming to save the day. And mm-hmm. what's actually happening is these laws are going to stifle and shut down conversations about difficult and important topics. Mm. And so if you are concerned about the kinds of behaviors like we've seen in some schools, like where, for example, students or faculty are separated into racial affinity groups, which is something that is already, you know, unlawful under federal civil rights law, that there are remedies for this, like that federal civil rights laws can be used. Or if you see curriculum that is being proposed in your school district, it's bad curriculum. You don't like it. It doesn't uh, teach history accurately. Well, then you should propose better curriculum. But these these laws are very are designed to stifle discussion, and that is mm-hmm. a serious problem. And yeah. if the laws are beyond K through twelve and into college, which several of the states are proposing, and even passing laws that be, go beyond K through twelve education and into college, they're unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. And so. So they present a real problem that they are stifling discussion, and mm. that is that is something that is um, a real danger when you're talking about educating kids to be part of a constitutional republic that protects and respects free speech. Mm. Yeah. Oh wow, David can can you um, can you expound on that a little bit more? Why? Is it so dangerous that we aren't educating our kids and the next generations to discuss different issues? Like, what is the actual danger there? Yeah, well, you know, one of the fundamental realities of America is that we're we're a diverse and increasingly diverse country. In other words, we're not just racially diverse or ethnically diverse. We're religiously diverse. We're ideologically diverse. There are a lot of different viewpoints and ideas and worldviews in this country. And one of the things that our, our founders understood is that if you're going to put, if you're going to sort of keep a very diverse country together, you have to have a culture, uh, a culture of free discourse, of, uh, a culture of free speech. And the First Amendment, and, and a free exercise of religion. And so the First Amendment is the, the way in which we sort of keep this marketplace of ideas alive. And but it doesn't happen naturally. The natural thing is that we want to censor the people we disagree with <laughs> and, yeah, and right. liberate the people we agree with. The sort of the natural human nature thing is free speech for me and not for thee. Mm-hmm. And that, mm-hmm. that is something that is antithetical to our American experiment. And so, But that has to be taught generation by generation. You have to be taught to participate in this marketplace of ideas. And, you know, this is an argument that as, a, as somebody... As a uh, conservative, I made on college campuses for years and years and years, and people cheered it. You know, people on the right cheered it. Yeah, we, we want to teach people about the marketplace of ideas, but then now you're seeing a lot of people on the right wanting to shut down the marketplace yeah, of ideas, and yeah. especially when it comes to really uh, thorny and difficult issues around race. And, and so the position in the op-ed is pretty simple. Look, if there is a problem with a toxic form of, of you know, um, whatever term you want to use, CRT or quote-unquote wokeness, 
there are legal remedies that already exist, and in fact, people have filed lawsuits against things like that. Hmm. And if there's curriculum that's bad, you can advocate for better curriculum. But what you should not do is pass really broad and vague laws that shut down discourse and shut down discussion. Mm. That's that's really good, David. I I wonder, and we're gonna you're gonna stay with us. We're gonna talk about some of the other articles you've written. But you're you know really interested in the Supreme Court, a lawyer, a scholar. Uh, I, I was having a discussion with a brother-in-law of mine about just how this current Supreme Court has been. Have you been surprised or pleased? What's your take just on this current Supreme Court? Because there was a lot of thought going into it, like oh, they're going to be this, they're going to be that. What is just kind well, of your I, take about how they've actually uh, judged and worked? Well, you know, I haven't been a surprise to some people, but I think the very um, the, one of the big takeaways is that this court has been a lot more unified yeah. Yeah. than people expected, and and that's something that I think is a, it's not it's is the court is the, the court decisions are based on whoever appointed the person to the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. That uh, for, you know, six three Republican appointee court, so therefore I know how everything is going to turn out. That has been really that has really um, surprised a lot of people that that's not been the case. That time and time and time again, big important cases have been decided, you know, eight to one or nine to zero or with very scrambled ideological alignment. Now, there have been some big cases that have been decided six three on those ideological lines. But the big majority of the very important cases in this court have been uh, with with. You know, majorities have included some of the Democratic appointees or some of the Republican mm-hmm. appointees were surprisingly in the minority. And mm. what's happened is that you have seen a critical mass of the court has really been striving most big cases to create sort of cross-ideological uh, alignment. Uh, and and this has scrambled a lot of people's expectations about the court. And and I think in many ways what's happened is the court has chosen to go for smaller, less sweeping rulings that get a bigger majority than going for more sweeping, contentious rulings that have a smaller majority. Mm-hmm. And that is a very, very interesting approach. And it's one that I think has actually helped to the extent anything does turn down the temperature a little mm-hmm. bit um, politically and culturally in this country. Absolutely. David French, the senior editor at The Dispatch, uh, author of Divided We Fall. Also, his blog is called The French Press. We're thrilled that David's going to stay with us. On July 4th, you asked and wrote about such an important question. And so I'm just going to ask you the question that, that was the title of your article, your blog post, just this. How do Christian patriots love their country well? How do you answer that question? Well, I have a one-sentence answer that I explain in about a 2,000-word answer. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, and the one-sentence answer is by seeking biblical justice more than Christian power. Mm. And... And I think, you know, one of the ways in which a lot of uh, Christians have been, have been brought up is to say, well, the real, the real, the goal here um, is to put Christians in positions of high places, mm. high places, but to put Christians in power. And if you put Christians in power, then good things will happen. And so a lot of, you know, decisions are made on the basis of, and I, and I talked about, for example, in the 2016 election that one reason that a lot of people gave me to vote for Donald Trump uh, and tried to persuade me to vote for Donald Trump was 
Well, if he wins, he's going to appoint a lot of evangelicals into mm-hmm. the nation's power. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he did. He did appoint a lot of evangelicals. And yet we still ha- were racked with all kinds of serious problems in yeah. the country. And it doesn't necessarily flow that when you have a Christian in a position of authority, that therefore justice is done. Mm. And because what ends up happening is the pursuit of power becomes its own end. And so, you know, we had, sadly, just a lot of Christians involved in that Stop the Steal effort. We had a lot of Christians who were, like at the Jericho March in Washington, and a lot of Christians who were storming the Capitol mm. because of that hunger and that quest for power. And, and the way I put it is, rather than the quest for power, the quest, what, you're, what we're asked to do in the Bible is to seek justice. Mm. That again and again and again, when you're talking about the relationship of a Christian person, a believer in Jesus, a believer in God, to their community, that word comes up, justice, justice, justice. And there, there, if that is your priority, if you are seeking justice, there are many ways to seek justice that don't involve you being in charge of them. Right. Mm. That's good. And, and so one of the things that I was saying is that if you reorder your priorities, and your priority is towards justice as opposed to your own personal advancement and your own power and thinking that justice will flow from your power, which is a sort of a effective way of appealing your own ambition to the sanctifying your own ambition, right? Um, but if your focus is on justice, it transforms in many ways the ways in which you interact with your community. And that's, that is how a Christian patriot loves their country well, by seeking justice, mm-hmm. by seeking the good of their home, the, the good of the, their land, and, and uh, changing that paradigm. And, and when you change that paradigm, it really reorders the way you think about politics in mm-hmm. important ways. Mm, that's good. David, let me um, just step back a little bit from that. For for the listeners who may not even understand, like, what is biblical justice? What is it that you're actually calling Christians to be passionate about? How would you define that? Yeah, there, there's a great, um, art, and, and I'm taking inspiration here, from just a really fantastic essay that was done that Tim Keller did, mm. you know, former pastor and, and theologian Tim Keller, about what is biblical justice? I mean, and this isn't the last word on it. I mean, there's no one person who's going to have sort of the last word. But he has four sort of characteristics of it. One of them is radical generosity. Mm-hmm. It is, And I love the way there, there is a quote that he used about what is radical generosity. The righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. Mm. The radical generosity, you're willing to pour, pour yourself out for their, your community. Another one, universal equality that requires every person be treated according to the same standards and with the same respect, regardless of race, class, ethnicity, etc. Another one is life-changing advocacy for the poor. Mm. You cannot read Scripture and not discern the special concern for the poor. And then the last one is both individual, and this is really important, corporate responsibility. A lot of conservatives understand the necessity of individual responsibility and individual accountability, but Keller notes that 
The Bible is constantly reminding us that institutions have responsibility as well. Nations have a responsibility as well. And so, you know, the New and Old Testament have are replete with examples of corporate responsibility. And so these are some basic concepts, equality, generosity, advocacy, responsibility, that, by the way, don't have a particular partisan frame to them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, you know? right. So neither team red or blue has got those things all right. squared away. <laughs> so... It really does change the paradigm. Wow. It does. It does. All right, David, let's ask you about one more blog post that uh, <laughs> had quite some fun uh, on our radio show we discussed about a week ago. And this, this is where we said we have to have David on again. Yep. You wrote a blog post that we had a ton of fun with called, When the Aliens Come, Will Their Arrival Destroy Our Faith? Or will it teach us that creation is more magnificent than we imagined? Uh, like I said, we had kind of a great conversation around that. I would just love to know, why did you write this, and where do you land? How, how would you answer your own question there? Yeah, well, you know, it's fun. When you have your own uh, newsletter, you get to write about fun things. <laughs> and, and, you know, I've always been like this sci-fi nerd and 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 been very interested and in, in fascinated by space and the universe and the cosmos and all of that. And the the occasion for the article was the release of the UFO report. Right, um, right. Uh, the the um, national, you know, the the national intelligence apparatus and and how it left a lot of things unanswered. And I've always had this question: What would it do? What would? And it turns out there's actually a lot of theological scholarship on this very question. Lots of serious people have pondered it. Lots of very serious people. And so the funny thing was, and the thing that just uh, kept amusing me, is that you were having a lot of atheist scholars who were sort of pondering this, saying, ha, well, if aliens show up, that'll really shock Christians, Mm. and it will really Mm. show how you know, their faith is, in, you know, it's ridiculous. And then all there's all this Christian scholarship that's going basically alien, cool. <laughs> <laughs> and in the, the disconnect, and I think that one of the things that I think the, um, uh, the, the atheist fellowship misses is how we're already, as, as Christians, uh, comfortable with the notion that there's something else out there. You know, mm-hmm. we, we think of, you know, angels and demons and, heaven and, you know, these are other places and other creatures and created entities. The other thing is that the Bible is, is silent on the existence of extraterrestrial life, but is rich with description of the wonder and mystery of creation. Mm-hmm. And so, so you know, uh, and, and the funny thing is, the more I pondered it and started to think about it, um, you know, if you, in, in an interesting way, uh, the belief in a creator God might actually make the existence of aliens more likely because mm. you know what? There's going to be exactly as many or exactly as few civilizations as the creator God wills. Right. Uh, whereas if you're somebody who's completely atheistic, what you have to believe is essentially that random, some of these random chances just over the sheer weight of mathematics and time are going to create a bunch of other civilizations, well, that may or may not be true. Right. Um, and so, you know, what I found just interesting was this was A, the amount of theory of scholarship about it, um, and then and then B, the uh, the silence of scripture, but C the the 
absolute presence in Scripture of, you know, awe at creation and its mm. mystery and its wonder. And so it just made me, it was a fun little thought experiment, yeah. you know, um, and actually in a way of faith-building thought experiment because of it reminded me once again of the wonder of creation as I was just sort of walking through all of this scholarship and these scriptures. And then, uh, but at the end of the day, you know, if the spaceship you arrive, we're all going to freak out. <laughs> I mean, that's the truth, right? I, oh, are, we'll have you on another time to discuss my my co-host saying definitively that there are ghosts around us. So we'll, we'll yes, have that conversation we'll as that. well. Cowboy oh, that's a whole that's a whole conversation. Maybe, you know, maybe we need to have our, a newsletter about that. There, you go. there we go. There you go. You can check all of that we've talked with David about, including the aliens. You can do that at the French Press. Uh, you can find that at thedispatch.com. That's thedispatch.com. I would also highly encourage you to follow David on Twitter, at David A. French. That's at David A. French. David, you're always so generous with your time. It's great to catch up. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. This episode is a rebroadcast of The Common Good on AM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on this Tuesday afternoon. Hopefully you're driving home, going to have some good dinner, going to enjoy some time with your family or your friends. My name is Aubrey Sampson, joined here by my co-host, Brian Fromm. We were asking the question earlier, How? what do you do if you want to hear a word from God? You're like hungry to hear from God, or maybe you're praying through something and you're like, Lord, I need to hear from you. Or maybe you're going to someone else asking for a word from God. And you found this tweet by a pastor, preacher, next generation director named Shane Pruitt, who says this, if you want to hear a word from God, Go to the Word of God. That's right. <laughs> Pretty simple. So what did you think about that, Brian? Yeah, he says, if you're needing a word from God, and and I think, I, fa- I, I really resonated with the simplicity of this, because mm. I think there's great depth to this, right? Like, we can always um, be like, man, I wish God would just talk to me. Mm. Like, I have this decision to make, or I'm struggling, I wish God would just talk to me. Uh, man, if he just came to me in a dream one night. Yeah. And God still does that. Absolutely. But, all the time. But if God were to come to me in a dream and be like, Brian, I want you to do this, then of course I would do it. I would wake up yeah. and I would go. If God would just, you know, if there would be a burning bush that I would walk out one day and God would say, here's what I have for you today, I would do that in a heartbeat. But we go, we, we start to go, but God's just silent in my life. Mm. And, and if he would just talk, God, why won't you talk to me? Why are you so silent? And I want to again acknowledge God still talks in dreams. All the time. God, God speaks, does give words to people God for other people. Words, and I yes. don't say that. I don't think even Shane Pruitt is, is talking against this. Yeah. I don't. I, I think that God gives words right in dreams and uh, God speaks audibly to people mm-hmm. in prayer. God does all this stuff. So this is not a view of like it's either the Bible or the miraculous. Right. But unfortunately, a lot of times when we're like, man, why is God so silent? We lose sight of the fact that we have the Bible, the, <laughs> right. word, the word of, of God. God. Yeah. And yet we ignore it, especially here in the West, because like your house is probably like mine. We've got more Bibles than we know what to Definitely. do with. Definitely. All kinds. We're si- there, there, there are all sorts of Bibles, yeah. kids' Bibles, this Bible, that yeah. Bible. And we ignore the fact that, you know what, God has spoken to us miraculously through his word. And so, yes, you could pray for miraculous. God, please give me a word. And God may, in fact, step in miraculously into your life and speak. 
But if he doesn't, that doesn't mean that God is silent in your life. But instead, he speaks through his word, through the Bible. And so, therefore, we have to be men and women of the Bible. We have to handle the Bible. We have to to, uh, just immerse ourselves in his word and know it. And and I do fear, I think he's getting at that a lot of times. Like, why is God so silent? And then the Bible kind of sits there. Like sitting right next to you and actually, oh, he's not silent. He's given you this entire word from his own breath and his own spirit. That's for us. Like, that's his word to us. And I think sometimes, you know, we, we think about the burning bush moment with Moses, like, of course, a lot of miracles followed after the burning bush moment. But like that was like once in a 40 year experience. Right. You know what I mean? Like right. Moses wasn't every single day having burning bush moments. And so that daily practice, mm-hmm. I think, is so important. That habit. Our friend Jen Pollock Michelle has a book called A Habit Called Faith. That habit of being in God's word, knowing God's word and realizing like, God actually speaks to us through his word, Mm -hmm. literally what's on the page. And then the Holy Spirit highlights things or you see something you didn't see before. And all of a sudden you realize God is speaking to you. That's right. But we do. I think Brian's right. We have to be people of the word. So, Brian, how do you go about Bible study or or searching God's word in your daily life? Or or maybe how do you tell your people to get into God's word? Yeah, those are great questions. Let me really fast tell you. Somebody commented on his tweet. And they, oh, wrote, what they, say? they wrote, if you want to hear the voice of God, read the word of God. If you want to hear God's voice audibly, read the word aloud. <laughs> that kind of made me laugh. <laughs> That's good. That did make me laugh. That's and, good. And so I do want to, again, before answering your question, I do want to say I go on walks in which I pray. Mm. And I literally ask God, God, I, 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 would you speak to me? Would you? Love you that. know what I mean? Like, yep. I, I, this again is don't hear from Aubrey and I going, God doesn't speak anymore. God yes. does, only speaks through his word. Right. God speaks miraculously. Yeah. He speaks through community. He speaks through nature. Exactly. Yeah. And so I, but also he speaks through his word. And so we have that in front of us. Uh, you know what, Aubrey, for me, uh, I try to just kind of work through reading plans and just try to get, you know, never get to the point where I'm like, oh, I've read this already. And so I try to. Uh, read a little bit of New Testament, you know, maybe a Psalm, yeah. work their way through the Old Testament and, and just kind of immerse myself in, in the word. But where I used to get myself in trouble was it was about how much it was like, mm. I've got to read this much. And that's okay, right? Like you're reading. Sure. Sometimes I've learned that reading just little amounts and yeah. just kind of, you know, kind I, of meditating on it or sounds, dwelling on yes, it. This yeah. sounds somewhat subjective, but kind of reading to you hit a point where you go, oh, I needed that. And just kind of yeah. sitting in it, yeah. I think becomes important. You know, you ask it, what do we do? Uh, I don't have great stuff for our people mm-hmm. necessarily, but I, I try to start them. In, if they never read the Bible, I try to start them in the Gospels. That's read good. the Jesus story. That's great. Read about who Jesus. Don't go start in, in the Old Testament. Work your way. Yeah. You know, you're going to get into Leviticus <laughs> yeah. and you're going to be like, I am out I don't get of it. this. Yep. Uh, but I try to start people in the in the, in the the New Testament and also people just have grace on yourself. There if you, you go. If you don't. You know, it's God's not up there like, you know, when we were kids and you were in school and he's, oh, you failed your homework today, Mm -hmm. right? Like, just give yourself grace. And if you fall behind your reading plan, that's okay. And so I know you shared with us that you tend to read early in the morning, but how do you decide what to read? Yeah, that's a really good question. I I think in the past I followed Bible plans. Like, this is what I love about this day and age. You get the Bible app. It kind of tells you what to read. You don't even have to think about it anymore. Um, there have been times when I don't have time to read in the morning. And so I listen to audio versions of scripture, which is kind of a nice way to do it if you're an audio learner. Um, right now, I'm sort of doing what you're doing, Brian. I'm just 
like getting up in the morning, mm-hmm. picking some scripture that I haven't read in a while and focusing on it again. I feel like I'm at a point where in my life I have wanted to dig really, really deep in scripture, know all the stories. And, I, you know, now studying the Bible for like 30 plus years, now I want to just sort of soak in good things about God's mm-hmm. word and sort of return to my first love. And, um, you know, I think there are different seasons for Bible reading. I think the other thing is, again, Remember, we have a communal faith. Brian and I talk about this a lot. And it is so good to study God's word or to read God's word with other people. Because there are dry seasons where you're like, all right, Lord, I'm not getting anything out of this. And um, when you're with other people, they help illuminate things in scripture that you can learn that maybe you miss. So that's a beautiful aspect of learning in community. And then also, sometimes I think this is the other thing. Reading the Bible is not always about what we can get out of it. Now, certainly God does that because he's good and he's gracious. But sometimes you open up your word and you read it because it's an act of worship. Mm. It's an act of saying, Mm -hmm. okay, Lord, under your word, uh, I submit myself. Under who you are and what you've given me here, I I bow down. And so um, sometimes it's not about you, right? It's about like being humble before the Lord and, and putting his word as like that main authority in your life and understanding the bible itself says that it is living and active like Mm, the bible is living and active it's not just some book that you're supposed to get through god still speaks today in his word and that's reason enough to go to it there you go all right so read your bible that's the lesson from us thanks so much for being with us for brian from i'm aubrey sampson and you've been listening to the common good on am 1160 hope for your life